Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mountain Meister. I am your host, Ben Shank. On January 31st, the American Alpine Club had their annual benefit dinner. This is their biggest event and one of the most anticipated throughout the year. This time, the gathering was in New York City, and climbing legends from all over the country and even the world were in attendance. During the day, the club hosted an interview, a panel discussion, and a presentation. This is the panel discussion. It's an Everest panel full of notable guides and Sherpas. For those of you who are loyal listeners to Mountain Meister, you'll recognize some of the names from past guests that we've had on the show. If you'd like to hear the other two discussions that happened on this day, you can find both of them on our website, MTN, like the abbreviation for Mountain, Meister, M-E-I-S-T-E-R, dot com, or you can find us on iTunes and any other podcast platform. Just type in MTN Meister, all one word, into the search box. Who are the Mountain Meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice with your host, Ben Shank. Let me start, let me start by asking the room, uh, how many people in this room have stood atop Mount Everest? Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Well, that's a pretty good crowd. I counted ten or twelve. Plus this crowd here. I think on the stage, including our moderator, we have 45 summits sitting before you. Um, I'm happy. I'm happy to welcome this crowd. We ended the last discussion alluding to what's going on on Mount Everest the future it faces, the past it has experienced, and the issues that are to come. So today, to talk about all that, I've got Nyingma Karma Sherpa from Nepal. Greg Vernonich, did I pronounce that right? Works for me. All right. (laughs) Who's been uh, managing the base camp there for years and years and years. Kanuru Sherpa, thank you for being here. Garrett Madison, Madison Mountaineering. Melissa Arnott, who's climbed Everest how many times, Melissa? Five. Five times. And and Dave Hahn, who happens to triple that. (laughs) And Alan Arnett who reached the summit just here recently, is going to be our moderator for this evening, uh, or this afternoon. And uh, uh, really what we're, we're talking about is something that is new to us in the mountaineering community, uh, the fact that uh, things are changing in Nepal and on Mount Everest at a pace that's hard to keep up with. 
but these people know it better than I, and I'll turn it over to you, Alan. Thank you. Thanks, Phil. So this is going to be a, a little bit different from a normal uh, panel where you normally ask one question and just kind of go down the road and ask everybody to, to address it. Instead, I'm going to ask one person a question and then invite other people on the panel to make any comments that they like. And I've got 20 questions. So are you ready, panel? <laughs> Don't look at me. <laughs> okay, the first question is who's going to win the Super Bowl, Greg? <laughs> Seattle. Oh, Seattle. All right, there you have it. All right, getting into the meat of it now. Mr. Hahn, for you, Dave. So, there's a lot of talk about climate change and how it's affecting the highest mountains all around the world, much less Everest. In fact, Appa Sherpa is famous for saying that Everest is going to become unclimbable eventually due to climate change. So, you've been climbing. When was your first summit? I first went in 1991 and first got to the top in 1994 on the north side. Okay, so we're talking what, close to 20 some odd years now. I can no longer do the math. <laughs> <laughs> so how has Everest changed in the, in the time that you've seen it over a couple of decades relative to climate change? Well, if of course, if you didn't know the greater framework, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to say that you're not just seeing normal variation, but uh, it, it so obviously fits in with what you read in the newspaper about what's going on. Um, it's very clear when you look at the, at the lower glaciers on the north side, the south side, they're going away. Uh, the downwasting of the glaciers that David Brashears and others have, have documented is uh, staggering. And yes, you can very clearly see that with your own eyes, the, uh, how the lower glaciers, the Rongbuck and the Kumbu, are now just a series of, of lakes and meltwater. Um, as for the changes up, up higher, that's going to be tougher to tell because, of course, those colder regions will still be cold. Uh, but clearly, at least right now, we're in a, a drought on the upper mountain. Um, it's been so dry in recent years that uh, it was very interesting listening to Chris Bonington talking about the Hillary step. He wouldn't recognize it right now. It's so dry compared to the, the 70s, the 80s, uh, the 90s. And, you know, as I said, you can't tell if that's not, is that a 10-year drought or is that part of the climate change as well? I don't know. Um, I don't think the mountain will become unclimbable, but, uh, but the, the game as we know it and as we try to play it is obviously changing. And specifically, uh, what, what's difficult about these drier conditions uh, the Lhotse face being icy is far more dangerous for us than it is when it's frozen snow. There's just much more chance of rock fall or somebody dropping a carabiner and that sailing down uh, water ice for thousands of feet. Uh, you know that. So from my perspective, that icy condition is is more dangerous. Uh, as to climate change and people saying that the ice fall is more dangerous, I'm afraid the ice fall has always been dangerous. 
and you know it's nowhere else in the world would you look at up the middle of the Kumbu Icefall and say, hey, let's put a climbing route through the middle of that. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm afraid that was, that's flawed logic to begin with, and I don't know that we can blame climate change for that one. So, Panarou, you, you start, your first summit was in 2001, yes. and you've summited nine times. Yeah. So how have you seen the mountain change over the last... Mm, change a lot, and I'm not saying like 15, 90. So my first time in the summit. Hold the Sorry, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, my first summit in Southside in 2003, and that time was in, especially in between South Summit to Hillary Steps. There are all the ice, it's not rich. So my last summit was in. 2011, and right now in between South Summit to Hillary Step and like the Alder Rock, that means like it change the climate change a lot. So it's all rock now. There's all rock now. versus ice. Ten years ago. Yeah, between ten years. Okay. Right, so Melissa, how, what, can you just tell tell us your thoughts about going through the ice fall? I mean, do you have concerns about it? You've been through it. You've been on five summits, so you've been through the ice fall. I don't know, 50 times, 40 times. Yeah, I think one of the things about the ice fall is you can't think too much or you won't make it through there, you know. Yeah. It's like Dave said, it's not a reasonable place to be. And um, yet it is one of the risks that you accept by climbing Everest on the south side in Nepal. And I have accepted that as a risk. And I try to manage the hazards that I can in the mountains and accept the ones that I can't. And, you know, I don't, I couldn't say being in the ice fall um, lends any extra special you know, desire for me to be on Everest. That is not an enjoyable <laughs> part of the climb, um, but it is part of the climb, and it is, you know, how we, how we navigate through that to get to the upper mountain. And I think climbing any mountain, you know, is, it's slightly cliched to say it, but it's hugely about the process and the way that you get there, and that's part of it. And it's, you know, I, don't, I haven't spent as much time as many of these guys have on Everest, um, but the time I have spent, I feel like I'm learning a little bit about it, and it's it's an unpredictable teacher. Any other thoughts about the ice fall or climate change from the panel? Great. <laughs> Are you guys not playing my game the way I want you to? We can't fight about anything yet. All right. So in that case, Greg, I'll have to ask you a question directly. So you thought through with IMG, you guys have guided just I mean, how many people have you guided on summit on Everest? Over, uh, over 400 now. 400, 400 people, and you've been involved with Everest since when? 2009. 2009. So how have you seen clients change in that time? Uh, there are more of them. Uh, <laughs> there are more companies out there uh, who will accept clients, and I think what I'm noticing most is that the companies are probably not screening the clients as efficiently as they used to. That's what I see the most. You know, as clients get higher, uh, much easier for them to get in trouble, and it's simply because we haven't uh, screened them. You know, the, the companies out there need to do a pretty good job of screening the clients and talking with them, uh, getting to know each other, and vice versa. The client needs to get to know the company and do their homework. Who they're going to climb with. Any other comments about the, the clientele on Everest? And 
Well, I think it's, you know, that's a good point. This, there's more people willing to guide clients, but I also think the infrastructure that has been created on Everest doesn't just make it easy for clients to start the trip, because that is one process, but then, you know, getting high and getting in trouble, we who are working on Everest are facilitating that. You know, there's a certain amount of effort that you personally have to put forth to climb on Everest, and we're facilitating making that effort less and less and allowing people to get into a much more remote situation or a much harder to deal with situation when they do find themselves in trouble. And I've seen that absolutely in the last seven years I've been there. Do you think that clients are becoming more dependent than ever on the Sherpas and the guides, or they're being less self-sufficient? We've always been dependent on Sherpas. Uh, they're an integral part of climbing Mount Everest. You think the clients are overly dependent? I don't know if we can quantify dependent. Okay. You know, dependent is dependent. And, uh, you know, I think uh, these guys are very important to the success of a client getting to the top of Mount Everest. Go ahead, Dave. Dave. Would you like to add something, Dave? <laughs> How could you tell? I mean, we're in danger of, I mean, we, we have good intentions here, but when we talk about the, the client, there, there is a huge range of the, the, what defines a, a client on Mount Everest these days. And I'm, I'm afraid that, that when, we, when we're just throwing that tag around, that people have this, the worst vision of somebody who's totally dependent and hasn't done their homework, uh, when the reality is, uh, some of the, the climbers that have paid for the services of others on Everest are very good climbers in their own right and are very well prepared for Everest, know its history, uh, respect the cultures, and are coming to it on, on terms that everybody in this room would, would think are the appropriate. Uh, and sure, there's, there's that range that's exposed when there's, a, when there's an accident there and everybody points a finger and says, well, that person wasn't ready for Everest, and that's a client too. But, but let's remember when we're referring to the, the clients that that, that encompasses a, a gigantic range in abilities uh, just as pointing to a guide on Mount Everest, there's quite the range uh, there as well. So it, it's not easy uh, to, to label it uh, so well with these terms. This is Mountain Meister, and you are listening to a panel discussion about Mount Everest that was hosted at the 2015 American Alpine Club Benefit Dinner. You just heard from Dave Hahn there, and if you'd like to hear more from Dave, we had him on for his own Mountain Meister episode. He's number 84. You can listen on our website, mtnmeister.com, or on your smartphone through your favorite podcast app. So keep the microphone, Dave. So another question is that in addition to... In addition to talking about um, you know the clients, there's another whole aspect happening, especially over the last let's say five to seven years, of the so-called stunts. I mean, there's people up there that you know have been married. There's a, there was a you know the Dutch gentleman a few years ago that tried to climb it naked. 
Um, you know, yeah. Yeah, there's, uh, there's jumps, there's wingsuit jumps or attempts, there's paragliding. Um, what's your opinion of those types of stunts these days? Well, I mean, I, I try not to be offended by them. I mean, some, some stunts, let's face it, are, are offensive or don't, don't take into account that this is a sacred mountain for many people. Um, and, but, you know, I, I try, personally, I try to remember that, you know, what, what this person is doing uh, wingsuiting off of Everest, while that might not be my cup of tea, uh, that it doesn't it doesn't affect my mountain. It doesn't, you know, it's not a threat to me. And you know, it it's it, different different strokes for different folks. And as always, it's let the buyer beware. I mean, if the if the public gets excited about about these and gets interested in climbing as a result, okay, it, then it's real. But, uh, but you know, sometimes we all kind of smirk because there, something's getting a lot of hype and there's no substance to it, but eventually people see through that kind of thing. Or if they don't, then they get what they deserve. You know? Anima, from, your, from a Sherpa perspective, okay. from a Sherpa point of view, what do you think of the stunts? We're going to just take a minute here and translate, and Nima's really nervous. <laughs> just relax. Repeat yeah. question, please. <laughs> He said, as long as the guy tips well, <laughs> he's totally good to go with it. <laughs> and he, so, what he really said was... <laughs> so he mentioned that, like... Uh, in, especially in our cultures. So we believe in a God. So we respect, respect in a God. That's why we're trying to lot and work, not kind of do like this special thing in the mountains. So people try to climb the naked and people try to jump, whatever you're there to do the merit on the top of the mountains. Uh, kind of uh, our culture is like a little different so that's why we're trying to like uh, every time we're trying to like and uh, stop all those things, and also we trying to talk about all the neighbor governments. So uh, we we're not gonna give the allowed and and the future. So if these kind of many things they do on the mountain, and if the girl the god is not happy, that that's the problem. And every year got a big tragedy. That's the way he did things. Good, thank you. All right, Garrett, this one's for you. So, you know, the North, the North Pole and the South Pole, the, those ridges, that's obviously 95% of the traffic and over the routes and the summits since the early 1900s. Um, 
you know, there are more routes on Everest. Uli mentioned he's still here, talked about, he teased us with maybe talking about a new route that, uh, that he's thinking about. But from a, from a guided perspective, from a commercialized perspective, there are other routes. There's the West Ridge, there's the Pinnacles, um, there's the North Face. You know, so what about that from a commercial perspective? What do you think the odds are that they'll ever be offered a, as a commercial special guide? Well, I'd certainly like to see that, but uh, in the near future, I don't think it's realistic to guide um, the other routes on Everest to West Ridge or, or uh, Great Kular or any of these extremely steep and technical routes. It's certainly possible, um, but the logistics uh, and manpower required to install the camps and the resources, um, fixed lines, it would be a monumental effort. So I think it's a very neat uh, possibility, but I don't see that happening in the near future. Greg, what about you, do you think? Uh, I, I think it comes down to what the client's uh, acceptable level of risk is going to be. Uh, there's going to be people out there, like Dave said about the, the, the kind of client. Uh, you know, with IMG, uh, we expect everybody to <coughs> arrive there with a certain set of skills and, and technical skills to climb the mountain. Uh, there are clients out there, there are climbers out there who have the ability to climb a more technically challenging route, probably on Everest. I mean, we see it on McKinley. There are different routes on McKinley and uh, that clients can sign up and go and climb. Uh, on Mount Everest, you know what? There's, a, there's probably a market out there. Uh, we're not looking at that market, but uh, I bet you there's some people out there who uh, who would explore this opportunity? K2, Garrett Madison. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. So, Melissa, there's been talk um, of the last couple of years about putting a ladder on the, uh, on the, on the Hillary step. Yes. Is that, is that a question? Good idea? Bad idea? <laughs> what are your thoughts? Honestly, it strikes me as kind of a weird conversation, to be totally honest with you. Um, in my experience of what the Hillary step is, like it doesn't necessarily make sense to have a ladder there um, as a fixed thing that that doesn't I don't know it just seems like a very weird conversation I saw it when it first came out um, in Nepal in the news and people talking about it but I don't know exactly where it originated um, and who was coming up with that the ministry thought it would be a good idea to speed up the climbs and, and to cut out the bottlenecks yeah but I'm just not sure that that would make sense you know I just think looking at what the Hillary step is now like um, and how it has been for the last couple years it just doesn't necessarily like that's not a sensible solution so just as sort of an out of place conversation I actually think I at base camp and stuff I haven't heard people talking about that operator saying we should fix a ladder on the Hillary step am I missing those conversations uh, this past year was the first year it came up and mm -hmm. yeah there's a uh, the, as far as the ladder on the Hillary step goes, you know, uh, tons of opinions out there on it. And number one, there's a historic significance with the Hillary step, let's be honest. And I, I think that climbing the Hillary step is part of climbing Mount Everest. That's my opinion. Uh, as far as the bottlenecks and the efficiency and the speed at that elevation to get people up and down, there are so many things that we can do as uh, climbers and guide services to uh, mitigate the amount of people that we saw in, I don't know, pick a number, 2012. I think there's a wonderful photo out there somewhere. Uh, 
And so we saw this line of people in 2012 going up to the South Coal. And why was that? You know, it's often more than one thing that leads to that situation. And that particular year, uh, we work every year uh, very hard to fix the route as early as we can. And then uh, after you saw in 2012, well, in 2013, there was an incredible effort amongst the base camp teams to talk about when and who and how many people they were going to send up the mountain and have that particular day. And in 2013, we fixed the mountain early. We did it also in 2011. We fixed the mountain quite early. 2012, we didn't. And then all of a sudden, everybody saw this window and, and took off running, so to speak. So I think there are a lot of things we can do to handle the number of people that are climbing Mount Everest uh, long before we have to consider this Hillary step in a ladder uh, situation. Hey Greg, last year, was it last year, year no, two years ago, IMG put a, um, uh, a rappel station off the step, but only only the your guides used it, nobody else used it. Do you think that's going to become a popular alternative? And I will ask you, Dave, the same question. I wish you guys were sitting up here. I got two Sherpas kneeing me right now. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, you know, I think uh, that alternate route, uh, you know, it, some people want to call it a stunt. Uh, you know, I pushed for it and I like it uh, and I believe it can help tremendously. Uh, get people out of out of danger, you know. And uh, if there's somebody having a hard time uh, on that Hillary step, and somebody's looking at their oxygen bottle, and they call down to me, and we talk about how much oxygen they have left, we might be able to move them a little more efficiently, a little quicker around that bottleneck on the Hillary step, and uh, get those people out of trouble. You know, we saw people in trouble in 2011, and. Uh, you know, maybe. Who knows? Hard saying, not knowing. Hindsight's it's pretty, twenty. It's a pretty difficult rappel, though. It's a pretty difficult rappel. You need to have the technical ability uh, and the guidance uh, to to be able to do that. And I trust I trust all my guys to be able to guide their client through a situation like that if need be. Dave, what are your thoughts on wrapping the stuff? <laughs> um, I I think Melissa hit on it at uh, the start of this, uh, the nature of the, the Hillary step, it doesn't really lend itself to a ladder solving the problem. And it, I think the, the reason that was probably suggested or that came up to begin with is there's a ladder on the second step on the north side, uh, similar altitude, well, why can't you just do the same thing and solve the Hillary step? But the second step, you know, a, a sheer rock step, the ladder you genuinely need the ladder there. The Hillary step already is a ladder of sorts, so the ladder is not, not solving a problem. What IMG and other teams uh, combine to do to put that wrap route in, well, that's great, but yeah, it's, it's uh, pretty spicy for my money, uh, you know, leaning back at that point and, uh, and trusting that, that wrap route with people's crampons going over the top of the anchors and stuff. But, but yes, another, another outlet, another way down that obstacle is a good thing, another possible way around it. 
But I think this gets into one of your, your questions is going to be comparing the north side and the south side. And I, I, go ahead. That's the next question. Is <laughs> let me set it up quickly. That there's a lot of debate right now after the disaster of last year that the south side is simply too dangerous to climb anymore. That uh, and no, in fact, uh, one operator even went as far as saying no credible and responsible guide service will take clients on the uh, south side ever again, and they've gone over to the north side. Take it away. I agree. No credible and responsible person would, but but I will be in two months. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I, I'm afraid the north side is is not uh, problem free, and particularly when it comes to the the summit day, uh, it's a one of the reasons that the Hillary step sticks out on the south side. The, there are not too many choke points on that summit day. It's a difficult day. It's a bigger day from the south side and up more and steeper terrain, uh, but it's more straightforward climbing in a sense. And then north side summit day comes down to a series of these uh, little traverses and traps that are very hard to negotiate um, should something go wrong, or should you be on a crowd, um, that that can make that day very difficult, uh, if you will, it's a it's a series of Hillary steps. Not not insanely difficult, but complicated from our perspective as guides. Uh, crowd control in that kind of terrain is difficult. Henry, you, you summited both from the north and south, right? Mm. Yes, sir. So can you com can compare the two? Do you think one side is safer than the other? Um, I like to say the north side is a little safer, so a little less danger and avalanche, especially for our guide. Dave already mentioned that, and then the summit day a little risk for the guide. So uh, I summited from north side in 2001 and 2003. So, and compare to the south side, and especially where guiding service or wherever we're guiding, to take the clients on the summit, the from north side is a little more rich for us. Okay. So, Garrett, you've, um, you've guided more people to the summit of Everest than any other uh, commercial guide. It is how many now? Uh, 38. 38 people you've taken to the summit. So, the question is, what what advice do you have? There's a lot of people in the audience I know that are going to be going this year. Is there, are there a couple of pieces of advice based upon your observation of mistakes that clients have made coming into the climb that you would advise people looking at Everest this year to try to focus on to avoid those mistakes? Well, uh, initially in your preparation, um, obviously you want to be trained and technically competent to go on an 8,000 year peak expedition. Um, one common mistake that pops up from time to time is overtraining. People want to do everything possible um, up until the last minute before departing to go to Nepal to maximize their chances. And I think sometimes climbers can push themselves too hard in their fitness training. So just sticking with your, um, <clears throat> your thought out uh, fitness program and obviously having the uh, prerequisite climbs under your belt from a technical standpoint and also an expedition. Uh, Know, three, four week uh, commitment, knowing that you can be away from your friends and family and your comfort zone for that long, 
I think is very important. And then uh, just following through on your strategy and your plan once you get to the mountain. Anybody else? Advice for prospective climbers or observations of mistakes people have made in the past? Dave. Dave. No. Why do you look at me when he says mistakes? <laughs> <laughs> you looked at me. All right, we're going to move on. Dot the I's and cross the T's at home before you go. Uh, family, friends, uh, you know, all this Wi-Fi, all this cell phone, all this mass communication that we are having now, especially on the south side. Uh, make sure you dot the I's and cross the T's with friends and family at home. That's the number one thing. I always say there's three pillars of climbing Everest. Uh, physical, which Garrett talked about, the mental and the emotional. And, uh, you know, you get that leg over the Hillary step and you see the summit, you got to stop yourself from crying because you're almost there. Uh, but that emotional uh, aspect of being away from friends and family at home, uh, clear your mind of all that before you get over there. No news is good news, we say. Get up there, climb, they'll be ready for you when you get home. So, Melissa, this one's for you. Um, you recently did the, the first ascent in Nepal, and Nepal opened up, the government opened up over 100 mountains in the six to 7,000 meter range. Uh, do you think that that's going to become an alternative to the trekking peaks like Mira and Island and Lobache, um, or even, even Everest or Amit Blanc? You had a great experience. Yeah, I just I had yeah I had a fantastic experience climbing in the Mustang. Um, we went to explore an area that really hadn't been explored by very many people and see if we could find these peaks. And my partners and I, we were actually looking for very moderate, fun climbing at around six thousand meters that that clients would enjoy, similar to Lobache Peak and Island Peak. Um, I think that, you know, there isn't going to be a replacement, most certainly not for Everest. There is no way to replace what Everest is. And the peaks that are attractive as trekking peaks are so attractive because of where they're situated. You know, you can have an experience and climb on Island Peak, um, a 6,000 meter peak, and, and just look at Everest just nearly touchable, you know, and it's right there for you and experience the, the magic of the Khumbu Valley. And, and the same is true for Lobache Peak. And so I think you will continue to see traffic on both of those peaks just by where they're situated. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, you know, and I think the truth is for a lot of people, it's not necessarily about the interesting part of the climbing. It's about where they are and what they're doing. And I think that could be especially said for Everest. You know, it's, it's about being on Everest. It's not necessarily like Garrett speaking about opening other, other routes for climbing on Everest. It's really about the summit section of Everest that most people are interested in on that peak, not necessarily how they got there. And I think that's going to be true for these other peaks as well. Hey, uh, just to follow on what Melissa said, uh, I think for people who want to climb the highest mountain in the world, nothing will replace Everest. But I do think it's great that the Nepalese government decided to open up 100 plus uh, peaks in the six to 7,000 meter range in Nepal that were previously um, inaccessible or off limits to climbing. And uh, it does take quite an effort to, uh, to figure out the logistics and, um, and get into one of these peaks and make a, a first ascent. But um, I know there is some interest, and I, I hope to see that develop, especially this next year following on what Melissa and her team did recently. Um, I know there are some groups planning to do some of these uh, unclimbed peaks in the, in the near future. You are listening to Mountain Meister, and I am the host of this podcast, Ben Shank. The moderator of this panel discussion, which you're currently enjoying, 
His name's Alan Arnett. Alan has been blogging about Mount Everest and the other big mountains around the world for many years. And Outside Magazine cited him as the most respected voice on Everest. We had Alan on for his own Mountain Meister episode. It's episode number 99 called Climbing with a Purpose. And that purpose is raising funds and awareness for Alzheimer's. Check out Alan's episode to learn more about how climbing with a purpose has completely changed his perspective. I want to shift the conversation talking about, uh, about the, the Sherpa community. And, um, and after last year, it was such a tragedy that uh, lost uh, overall 19 uh, Sherpa lives were lost last year, 16 in that one incident. So it brought into question uh, some of the skills and some of the training. And we all, a lot of us are familiar with the Kumbu Climbing Center and, and what a great work it does in training the Sherpas. And Greg, I'd like for you to maybe start off this conversation. I really would like to have everybody make a comment on this about what skills do you think that the Sherpa community still needs in order to be able to safely guide clients on Everest but that are, are perhaps lacking right now. And the context is that we're getting more and more clients. It used to be 100 people would summit in a, in a season. And now you've got 500 people summiting. And the ratio has gone from one to, one to well, one Westerner to two Sherpas, I'm sorry, the other way around, to uh, two Sherpas for every one climber. So you've got more Sherpas. And so that demand is supply and demand. Are the, is there enough trained Sherpas to really adequately uh, meet this demand that's growing, especially coming from India and China and within Nepal as well as Western Europe, et cetera? That is a loaded question. Uh, (laughs) So much to talk about here. Uh, What is needed by the guys is uh, know the terrain. And those Sherpa that we have over there that work for IMG, International Mountain Guides, uh, they know the terrain. Uh, What they need to do to safely guide Everest... uh, I love the Kumbu Climbing School and what Fanuru and Nima do over there as instructors. And uh, we encourage not only here in the United States as guides, but over there to continue their education uh, in the mountains, technically, uh, in school, with their language skills. Uh, What I think the Sherpas need to have the ability to do, and I think these guys sitting next to me here, as well as my whole team of Sherpa, which uh, the past number of years I've had 70 Sherpa on the permit who are allowed to go above base camp. Okay, now those Sherpa are from young to old. I have guys who've summited Everest 18 times, some of them. And then I have Sherpa who are, this is their second, third, fourth peak, and they're working their way up, and they want to be Fanuru someday and have the English skills. And I think one of the big things for Sherpa that are coming up through the ranks and working with clients is to be able to have a voice. Uh, I've had some knockdown, drag-out matches uh, verbally with Nima sitting over here and he's really shy but he can talk let me tell you and uh, I think it's incredibly important for these guys to have a voice and be able to come to myself as the expedition leader uh, our Sirdars uh, I have three Sirdars just within our team uh, Fanuru's my on-mountain Sirdar he is my eyes when I'm down at base camp Fanuru and I are talking 
constantly all day long and uh, they need to be able to say hey we we don't like this I don't want to take my client through that section and we have talked about this at length especially about the root but in question about this tragedy last year uh, so many things went into uh, that tragedy it's very rarely one thing that goes wrong uh, that culminates in something to that extent and one of the things that we found out in picking up the pieces after that tragedy was first and foremost that ice fall had one ladder on it and that ladder had been broken and the guys were trying to fix it when that happened the other thing that we noticed was when we were pulling backpacks out of the helicopter after we were cleaning up that mountain we were noticing uh, loads that were incredibly heavy okay we have rules within our company and they're actually rules uh, with the Nepal Mountaineering Association of how many kilos a load is allowed to be and we were pulling off backpacks from that helicopter that the guys were carrying that were two times the allowed weight limit for a guy to go up through there so we're asking these guys to carry loads and move efficiently I hasten to say that we're we want them to rush or go as fast as they can because then maybe the guys aren't clipping or unclipping and using all the safety they need to do we want them to clip and unclip and be safe wear their helmets we can go on and on but uh, having the Sherpas pick up their backpack and turn to their expedition leader and say you want me to carry all this up there hang on a second and these guys I, I hope uh, understand that they can come to me uh, the last argument Nima and I had was about the load sea face uh, and how dry it is to go back on Dave and you know uh, we were up there and we were looking for the best way to go up the load sea face without having more rock and ice fall and boy I love the dialogue because these guys are good Anything so we'll, to add? We'll get to, we'll get to load carriers in a second. Um, Melissa, I want to ask you to talk a little bit about the Juniper Fund, but also in the context of, uh, of skills required for the Sherpas to adequately support uh, you know, the clients up there. And do you think that the, the vast majority of the Sherpas have the appropriate climbing skills and the leadership skills and the language skills that are necessary to do it safely? And then if you would, just go ahead and comment about Go ahead and answer that if you would. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I think just like any place where you have a lot of people, there's going to be a huge range of types of people that you're going to work with. There's going to be people who are very experienced and people who are new and learning, people that have great grasp of language and leadership, and people that have a less good grasp of that. And that's true with the Sherpa culture just as it is with any culture. And you see that, that very much on Everest. You know, there's a huge range of um, types of employees that are working on, on the mountain. And, you know, like Greg is alluding to, I hope that the companies that are hiring all their staff, their Western guides and their, their local guides, are trying to do that responsibly and not just hiring bodies, but hiring people that are well suited to do the job, like any job. And, you know, you see a mix of that because there is a lot of people there. And um, it's hard to tell, though, sometimes because, you know, we all were new at one point and learning and starting, and that's true on Everest, too. You know, people are learning and starting there. On that mountain and working on that mountain, and you see you see a lot of Sherpa that are that are new. So you know, with the Juniper Fund, you try to raise money to support uh, the families of Sherpas who have been killed in the in their job mountaineering as Sherpa guides. 
what's been the reaction to those families uh, to the risk that the Sherpas take? You're probably uniquely qualified here to talk about that because of the, the Juniper Fund. Yeah, so in 2012, David Morton and I founded the Juniper Fund to provide additional financial support to families after a death occurs of a local worker. Um, a lot of those are Sherpa, and, um, and also to work within the government to try to increase the insurance standards and increase some of the, the benefits that families get when there is a tragedy that occurs. And this fall, we were able to go in, on September 9th and take funds to 21 families um, who were impacted by, by the loss of life of one of their family members. And, you know, that was hugely in generosity because of the American Alpine Club and, um, and all the support that they gave us, as well as um, other private donors and organizations. And there is nothing I've ever done in my entire life harder than sitting at a table with 13 widows who have lost their husbands or their brothers or children who've lost their fathers that year. And it's easy to sort of say at the start, I started out by saying, you know, the ice fall is a risk that I accept. And I can't really accept that on the behalf of other people, especially when faced with the consequences, when you really see it. And, you know, it is, people are going to climb Everest regardless and assume that risk. And there is a tremendous benefit to having work and, um, and fairly decent paying work. But, you know, I think we have to function really responsibly and try to make sure that we are supporting families long term if there is a tragedy or an accident and try to increase the standards from the government. And it's, it's an incredibly complicated process and, and really hard to do, but I think it's really important. And the life insurance and medical has been increased for this year. It has been increased, and that, you know, that's one thing that's kind of a potentially a good thing. Little increases are good, but also you know, we want a much greater increase. We're hoping for a much bigger increase, a much bigger show of support, and so maybe that's harder now because the government can say, we just did increase it. What do you want more? You know, so it's hard because we really want the standard to be, to be adequate, you know, if not generous. You just heard from Melissa Arnott, who is also a Mountain Meister. She is featured in episode number 74. It's called Exploring Mountain and Mind. If you'd like to find out why a person 30 years old has already summited Everest five times, or if you just want to know why she tells people she works for Starbucks, you should listen to her episode. So one of the issues is um, with all the load carrying that we asked for the Sherpa community to do on behalf of people like me, um, that I can't do it for myself, that you have a lot of gear that has to get ferried into the Western Coombe, up to camp, uh, primarily advanced base camp, camp two on the, uh, on the south side. So I've seen a lot of, of what I would term luxuries at advanced base camp at camp two. Huge tents. I mean, you know, tables and chairs, uh, you know, individual tents by, for some people instead of teaming up. When you compare that to McKinley, where, you know, you get out, eat out of Tupperware and you know, you have four to a tent, and in many cases, you spend more time at a higher altitude uh, on other mountains than you do on Everest above base camp. What's the need for all of that shit up there at camp, <laughs> too? I mean, why don't we just cut it? And I know there's a lot of talk about using helicopters to get up there, and uh, in fact, you know, a lot of you guys already have gear stashed from, uh, or cash from last year that you couldn't get down. But the Nepalese have not been able to or will not allow helicopters to go up there. And frankly, all it's going to take are a couple of 
those uh, B-3 helicopters to crash and the insurance companies are going to say, we're not going to foot the bill anymore. So honestly, using helicopters is probably not a good solution. So back to my question. Greg's going to disagree with me. I'd love it. But I'm going to, I'm going to hit up uh, Garrett first because he's wiggling the most. So what, why do you have to have all these so-called luxuries at advanced base camp? I think um, as uh, commercial operators struggle to compete against one another, one of the uh, incentives they can offer to their potential climbers are these luxuries at Camp 2, like uh, big dining tents with tables and chairs, uh, propane, propane heaters, sometimes carpets. Um, so that's, that's definitely uh, approaching over the top. And uh, I hope that we do see a decrease in, in that amount of uh, luxuries. If we had helicopters, it would make it easier to ferry those loads up. But um, what I would like to see happen is for the government, government of Nepal to allow teams to store equipment at Camp 2 that they use year after year so that it doesn't have to be ferried up and down through the ice fall. However, I wouldn't mind also, as you said, um, seeing it revert to a more Denali-style climb where, where climbers are. Um, eating out of their Tupperware and living in their small personal tent and not having these big uh, luxurious amenities. Dave, what's your comments on this? I mean, you've been around a long time. You've seen you've seen this this luxury creep as it goes up the mountain. Yeah, I mean, it's ingrained in in Everest climbing. It's it's partly it's a make work project, an Everest trip, and and you know the loads that go to advanced base camp are just are part of that, but. Uh, you know, to to say as I did that the Kumbu Icefall is a, a ridiculously dangerous climb, um, yeah, that's fine, but to leave it at that and to shrug your shoulders and say, well, then we can't do anything about it, and then to march right through or to send your climbers right through, um, I think that's irresponsible as well. How we put that, that route through the Icefall, how it's maintained, and back to your last question about the level of competence and training and equipment that the climbers you're sending through it have, um, yeah, that's all relevant. And, you know, uh, if we're going to send people through the icefall, employees, in my book, they should be equipped the way we would be equipped anywhere else in the world for similar work. They should have avalanche beacons. They should have radios uh, so that we don't end up with traffic jams like the tragic one this last year. And they should be part of teams that are communicating well enough that they know where all their team members are. And, you know, instead of those packs jammed to the gills with just the loads being carried, like any other climbers in the rest of the world in a dangerous place, they should be carrying rescue gear. You know, every, every so many Sherpas should have a, an ice axe and a rescue rope. Uh, some of these things that are a minimum anywhere else, yeah, those would be useful tools in a in dangerous terrain like that. I, I don't want helicopters doing the, the climb for me. I don't, I don't want helicopters uh, ferrying loads. I, if we're going to climb Mount Everest from the south side, as bad as it is, we're going to deal with the Kumbu Icefall. But, uh, but how we deal with that, I think there's a great range, and I, I think it's smart to focus 
on what you would do in the Kumbu Icefall to make yourself safer, uh, your climbers safer, your Sherpa and Nepali staff safer. So one of the one of the things you guys are talking about is a common theme that I'm hearing is that um, that there's there's this this creep going on of, of competition amongst mainly the Western guides and you know there's about ten companies around the globe that have really made their mark on Everest over the last we'll say 20 years but there's a whole new breed of companies that are that are emerging now in Nepal um, you know we've had the traditional ones like Asian trekking but new ones and like uh, Seven Sons Trek who in 2012 had 98 clients, and they charged uh, reportedly around $20,000 per person. And most of those clients came from India, and uh, some from China, and some from Nepal. Uh, this panel, you guys, Chris, Greg, you traditionally were at around 40,000 for a Sherpa guided climb, now you're up to 45. Uh, Garrett, you were with AAI for a long time, which was 65,000. Mr. Han here, will, you know, he'll take you up for the mountain for you know, about the same amount of price. So you guys are at the high end, and you've got the small, you've got the local companies coming in at the low end. How are you going to compete? Jared, I'll launch it to you first. Yeah, I think uh, it could be a race to the bottom, but it won't be because um, what the, the foreign companies, American, European, New Zealand-based companies will continue doing is maintaining a very high standard on the mountain. And um, part of that means uh, you have foreign leadership. You have guys like Dave Hahn or Melissa or, or Greg uh, up on the mountain making decisions. And um, it costs a lot of money to bring somebody like Dave Hahn to Everest. You have to pay for his permit and expenses and a small salary. So, you get paid. Um, so the big difference is uh, with a company like Seven Summits Trex, um, they're not bringing any foreign people to the mountain as guides or team leaders. Um, it's a solely Nepalese-owned and, and operated uh, organization. So they're able, they're able to keep their costs way, way down. And also, by sheer scale and numbers, they're able to pack a ton of people into their base camp and bring down their overall costs that they need to charge for logistics and facilities. Um, so for a, a cost-conscious climber, it's absolutely something to look at to save thirty, forty thousand dollars uh, on your Everest climb, but you also have to look at the statistics, and in the end, we always see the fatalities are are high um, from these companies that lack the um, the foreign oversight. I want to talk. <laughs> <laughs> your your question was, how are we going to compete? I'm absolutely not going to compete. I, I don't want to compete with anybody on Everest. I don't want to run a business on Everest. I want to guide. Um, and to do that, I have to, to learn to, to deal with other people on the mountain and, and, and work with those other organizations. But as far as stealing away their business, I don't want it. I don't want somebody who wants to save money on Everest. I don't want somebody who wants to save time on Everest. I want somebody who is so rapidly enthralled with the idea of climbing Mount Everest that they can barely be held back. But, uh, you know, I, I don't want to take somebody uh, to Everest that, that wants to do it on the cheap. Uh, there are other people that, that will. That's great. There's too much at stake for me. Competition? Anybody else? 
I liked how passionate Dave was just there. <laughs> that was awesome. Not a competitor. That was awesome. So Gary, you brought up um, you brought up the death rates, and uh, you know every year people die in Everest. Uh, clients and, and sometimes guides and sometimes Sherpas, um, often Sherpas, but there's really no regulations that dictate who can guide on Everest. Anybody can put up a website and, and claim that they're an Everest guide. But also there's a lack of transparency that um, would guide services that don't report deaths that happen on Everest. And often that's attributed back to the family saying, well, the family said, I, I don't want you know, my loved one to be um, brought up in the press for dying. But isn't there a way of, of meeting the confidentiality and the respect and still being transparent? And I don't think it's going to happen necessarily with some of the local guides and some of the ones that are competing on price. But isn't it time for the Western companies to take leadership and be more transparent about deaths? Because most of the time when the deaths happen, it's not your fault. It was something that happened. It was a latent defect in a person that had an aneurysm. It was a, they fell in a crevasse. It was something that was way beyond your control, and how you handled it could actually be you know, something that would be good. So why is there not more transparency amongst the Western guide services, and I include American, European, New Zealand, Australian, in that, around deaths on Everest? That's a great question, Alan. Um, fortunately, I haven't had to deal with a uh, climbing client on my team that's died in Nepal or on Everest. Um, we did lose three Sherpas from our team that were buried in the ice fall accident in the spring. But uh, I think initially it's out of respect to the family and wanting to uh, let the family communicate with their their uh, relatives and loved ones about the loss of their, their family member on the mountain and uh, and then giving permission to the uh, operator the American or European New Zealand guide service to convey that information but you're right there isn't transparency out there you can't easily find uh, um, statistics related to fatalities with Western guide companies yeah if you google um, some famous uh, guide companies and the word death or dead or injury, often you come up with nothing, which tells me that that website's been doctored to remove that so that they maintain their good image. You looking at me? <laughs> You've got a good image. Luckily, I, I haven't had personal experience with this, but, uh, but we all know there's a very fine line between uh, announcing injuries or death on your team and sensationalizing it and benefiting from from the media storm that that comes with that kind of publicity so i think we'd all be in horror if to see that that kind of thing used incorrectly you know to promote the next year's climb so that it's what you're talking about isn't just in climbing, but in any ad adventure travel, that's a very sensitive subject. And again, I, I think for the way you're asking the question, you know, I think you're asking it from the, in terms of how can somebody tell with the company that they're signing up with, have they had injuries or deaths in the past? And as always, let the let the buyer beware. Uh, I don't think it's strange that that you 
tap into the guide service and the front page doesn't say, you know, we've hurt this many people. <laughs> but it's not impossible to dig around and, and, and understand the reputation and the experience level of the, the people that you're looking to, to sign up with. I agree with Dave there. And uh, it, it goes back to very important that the client, as climbers, uh, they need to do their homework. And if you call, you know, you can call IMG and talk to Simonson or myself, and we're, we're an open book and very transparent about that. And as far as uh, a death goes, uh, our policy within IMG, and I think probably amongst most of the people up here, is uh, our clients appreciate that we're not plastering all over the Internet or our blog uh, that somebody passed away. Uh, not only with, if it were to happen with our own company, but another company. Uh, you know, you're sitting next to some friends and family in the room. Wouldn't it be the worst possible thing in the world to have to read about uh, how Sally is dog meat on the climb today and there's no way she's going to make it? Or so-and-so from another team uh, died uh, a couple of days ago. That would be the worst possible way I think anybody would want to find out about that. And so all these blogs, I think, you know, we're not news sources, uh, but as you're doing your homework and you're studying about what guide service you want to climb with, I would think this goes in that list of questions uh, that, that you would want to ask. And hopefully that guide service talks about the different situations they've had on the mountain. So given all the deaths last year and as we approach now two months into 2015, what are you going to do differently this year? What lessons were learned from last year? that we should put the ice fall route back in the middle with two lines in the bottleneck spots. Okay. Other lessons? I think what Greg just said, uh, two lines, uh, I believe he's referring to an up line and, and a down line. Like, in the ice fall? Yeah, like we have um, on sections of the Losey face and even the summit ridge, uh, for instance, the Hillary step in 2013, an up line and a rappel line. That way, uh, hopefully there wouldn't be congestion in the ice fall in areas that are exposed to a significant objective hazard, mainly overhanging ice. I think more importantly than the objective hazard of the ice fall, which will continue to always be hazardous, and we watch avalanches come through there, and sometimes nobody's hit, and sometimes a lot of people are. I think, you know, learning from last year how we support the local workers who are working there and trying to do a better job of, of actually being supportive and responsible members of the climbing community in Nepal when we are there. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, the SPCC uh, is in charge of a group called the Icefall Doctors, and I think all of us are probably in agreement. I put words in everybody's mouth that, uh, you know, we need to continue to train these Icefall Doctors. And I'll throw out a number off the top of my head. Last year, the uh, SPC collected $150,000 uh, that was supposed to be put towards equipment and training for the icefall doctors, ladders, ropes, screws, training, uh, all the gear icefall doctors need uh, to go there. And the SPCC is encouraged to save as much money as they can from that so that they can put it towards other things in the off season. Now, these other things are great. You know, some recycling plants here and there, that'd be fantastic. Uh, in the Kumbu Valley, which we've seen great improvements uh, with recycling. But uh, 
I believe more of that money that's going from the climbers towards the SPCC should go towards the icefall doctors, whether there are more of them so they can uh, be there a little bit more around the clock, the training of the icefall doctors, the route, uh, you know, the past few years, and I've been advocating for years uh, to see if we can move a little bit further away from that shoulder up near the top. Maybe we can keep a line, maybe a down line over there because it is quicker. It's more efficient for coming back down. Uh, but staying away from that shoulder where all that stuff can rip off, and uh, that'll take a little more manpower. That'll take a little bit more education and ladders and rope, uh, but possibly going back towards the middle might get us out of, out of the way of that shoulder. Dave? You bet. I agree. Uh, if we can go to the middle, I mean, the, the center of the glacier has been shattered uh, for the last five years or so, and that's why the, the icefall doctors have put the route on that shoulder, and the Sherpas tend to like it better because it is faster. Uh, but yes, it has that potential for the bigger disaster, whereas going up the center, there's always uh, still the potential for one or two or three people getting killed when something collapses, but not as much the, the catastrophe. So yeah, my hope is that we can have a little more influence. The SPCC is essentially the national park. Um, but yeah, it's been this unfortunate situation that the Sherpas that they hire to work the icefall route um, with our money are the some of the poorly most poorly equipped guys on the mountain uh, with poor benefits and uh, not much structure to it and undermanned. Uh, so I was encouraged to hear Punuru uh, was just involved with training with some of the icefall doctors and said they had doubled that staff to, to 10, but I'd want to see uh, more icefall doctors. They have, a, they have a dangerous job and it's a thankless job largely. Uh, I'd like to see them paid better. I'd like to see more of them employed. If we're going to have a route through the Kumbu icefall, then the least we could do is, is make it a better route through the icefall. And, uh, and I think that would be a good place to start. But the, a difficult thing for us, in order to have some influence, you've got to go over there a little bit earlier in the season when that route is getting put in. And none of us really wants to be there in mid-March when it's kind of cold and wet at base camp. And, and to take that charge and to be involved on a day-to-day -day basis at that time of the year, but that might be what's required to actually have some influence. Um, you know, we, we've all got other things to do at that point of the year, but, but that might be what's, what it takes. So I've got one more question because I'm running out of time, but then I also want to get through some follow-on question <coughs> or something that somebody's just dying to ask. I'd love to take a page out of Jim's book and open it up to the audience. So my last question is around, uh, around K2. And so in the last couple of years, uh, actually 2012 and 14, there were close to, well, around 40, 45 people summoned to K2. In a typical year on K2, it's uh, only a handful of people that summited. I was lucky enough to summit last summer with Garrett, and we had a small team of three Americans that summited along with three wonderful Sherpas. 
So, Garrett, do you think that uh, K2 has become the new Everest? Well, it's uh, you know, it'll always be a different mountain. Um, just getting to K2 is logistically much more difficult in Pakistan, especially for an American. Um, much longer trek to base camp, completely unsupported without any of the villages or human settlements along the way. And uh, the mountain traditionally has been more difficult and dangerous, um, both from objective hazard and also um, due to bad weather. But I think for climbers who are looking for um, a, a big challenge after Everest, it certainly presents an, an interesting objective. Dave, would you ever guide get K2? Uh, to be fair, I haven't been asked. <laughs> I think I think K2 is a mountain that um, many people, not, not all obviously, but many people choose to go to it to prove that they don't need guiding. And uh, I, you know, the more it gets climbed, uh, the less its difficulties will be. It will become established just the same way the south side of Everest and then the north side, you know, that once things became better traveled, once things became known, it became easier to do it year to, to year. And sure, the same thing could go on on uh, K2. Uh, but yeah, as, as Garrett said, that the access is a little different. And, uh, and yeah, to be honest, my services aren't in great demand there. And that's okay with me. You know, there's plenty of mountains that I wouldn't aspire to guide or even climb, but I wouldn't mind seeing it someday. Greg, would ING ever guide K2? Not right now. Not right now. There's a lot of, just, there, there are a, a lot of uh, risks that I don't see acceptable uh, from going into the country of <laughs> uh, Pakistan. Uh, we don't need to talk about that, but. Uh, I think the risk, and I, I second Dave, you know, a lot of climbers go there uh, to prove they don't need guidance. Uh, so, not right now, the, the risk. So, a question from the audience. Oh, man. Sure. Um, we touched on in the previous talk the idea of should there be control introduced in some form with regards to maybe the numbers, you know, or a more laissez-faire approach where it's going to reach its own natural limitations. You know, I, I'm sure from a commercial standpoint, it's a double-edged sword. There's probably pros and cons to having some kind of imposed controls as opposed to just a natural, you know, finding its limits. What are your thoughts about introducing some kind of control on particularly the numbers, I guess? So, so in the back, the question is basically, can you control Everest with the number of climbers and should there be a quotas put onto it, for example? Who, who would, uh, I guess the question I asked back was, who, who would control it? The government of Nepal? Presumably, but... Uh, yeah, you, you, with the government of Nepal, they, you know, they can't even give their people electricity and clean water right now. So, uh... <laughs> So, so to ask the government to do anything, you know, and, and that's, uh, whew, we can get into some more questions probably that I'm sure the hands are going to go up over, but uh, you know, we, we've got enough battles right now, and I think the teams at base camp can do a pretty good job of handling the numbers. 
Yeah, it's interesting if you actually look at the actual numbers. There was more climbers in 2008 than 2009, 10, and 11. The numbers continuously decreased and slowly started to increase again and then dropped again. So we, we look at pictures that really say, oh, there's a lot of climbers there. There's a lot of climbers climbing on the same day. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily like the total number management that's right now the issue. And I think, you know, it is important to look at how we're climbing, trying to climb responsibly, ensnaring as few other people and resources in our summits as we can, and um, look at that a little more responsibly than just the set number. So more of the how rather than the sheer. Yeah, and, and I've been... Like the knowledge yeah, and I've been a huge advocate of saying we who have summited Everest shouldn't really have the right to say you can't. Yeah. You know, it's kind of a hard Been thing to... That, yeah. Yeah. Hey, uh, Greg mentioned earlier about uh, really talking to your clients to find out what kind of experience they have. And why can't there be a rule that requires a, a certain level of experience, i.e. having climbed other 8,000-meter peaks before going to Everest? Because before I ever went to Everest... I didn't feel as though I belonged there until I'd had the experience of other high peaks. And when I was on Everest, I met a guy from California who had only climbed uh, Mount Whitney before going to Everest <laughs> and felt that he was qualified to be there. And so why not uh, create a rule that says, you know, you, you need to have a certain level of high altitude experience having climbed Chovayu or some other peaks before you get yourself... So why not require something more than Aconcagua and Denali to be qualified to climb Everest, Dave? Well, I think, you know, nobody would, would argue that, that more experience before going to Everest is a bad thing. But, uh, you know, we can decide all in favor of more experience. <laughs> we, we can make a decision here on Lexington Avenue in, in Manhattan but, you know, as you mentioned, the, you know, a lot of the climbers now are coming from the, the new affluence <laughs> in China and India. Um, we, can, we can set our standard, but that won't, uh, unfortunately, that won't change the reality and the coming reality on Everest. Um, you know, I, I work for a guide service, Rainier Mountaineering, we're, we work in the national parks in America on Mount Rainier and Denali, and we're pretty heavily regulated. I'd say very heavily regulated. I, I don't want that on Mount Everest. Um, I would like a little bit more regulation there, but, uh, but as Garrett said and, and others have said, you know, who's going to do it? And uh, yeah, the, unfortunately, the government of Nepal is, is not who very many of us look to for help these days. Greg, did you want to add? That's, that's, yeah. I think we're okay. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, back to economics, and I'd like Panuru to answer this question if you would. Um, with the climate change increasing risks and increased expectations on you and the Sherpas, language requirements, so many other educational requirements. Um, how has your compensation been changed in recent years? And then if one of the guide services would answer that too. So the question is, have the Sherpas, are the Sherpas getting paid more now due, uh, in relation to the increased workload and the risk? Uh, yeah, 
So especially I work in IMG, so almost 14 years ago. So first time I work in IMG, so uh, I'm just beginner shippers. So uh, right now I'm uh, climbing further in IMG, so I always talk to the Greek, uh, so we need to be good paying for the shippers. And always we're looking for the good, good skill shippers. So um, the climbing, the climbing chains uh, talking about like this. And so last year, one of the, my shippers and he climbed Everest more than 18 times, 19 times. And he uh, this year also I talked to him. So he mentioned that I'm normal climb to Everest. And I asked to him so why. So he says like. The, between like 10 and 12 years, the uh, climate change is a lot, so especially in let's say facing it south uh, and south summit and uh, ice fall. He talked about like that, and that's where, uh, yeah, in the climate change a lot, and most of the uh, old climber now very nervous. So, to the question of are, are the commercial operators paying Sherpas more? Today than they were three or four years ago. Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. Last question. I, yes, right here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My question is: Do you see Nepal and China ever approaching the ecological standards that are on Denali in terms of preservation and waste removal? Uh, the The question was about uh, getting environmental, environmental and ecological concerns uh, in that part of the world. Tibet and Nepal up up to our standards and the care we do take in our national parks and sure that would be the hope and I think uh, great progress has been made that way on Mount Everest uh, more progress needs to be made uh, for sure we have an impact by going there as much as we talk about trying to clean up the mountain and, and actually cleaning up the mountain, bringing down uh, tons of, of waste, uh, the fact that we go to a, a fragile part of this planet means that we have an impact by being there. And so more needs to be done. But probably your best hope for that kind of progress that you're seeking is uh, a better economy in Nepal better economy in Tibet, you know, more affluent people tend to uh, have more time uh, to be concerned with their environment, more opportunity to take care of their environment. All right. Well, thanks a lot to the panel, and thanks to all of you. hope you enjoyed this panel discussion about the current state of Mount Everest. Again, this was hosted at the 2015 American Alpine Club Benefit Dinner Weekend. If you would like to hear the other two presentations that went on that day, one was an interview with Uli Steck and Sir Chris Bonington, the other a presentation from American professional rock climber Sasha DeJulian. You can check out both of those on our website, mtnmeister.com, or on your favorite podcast app. We also have a whole library of over 100 episodes full of interviews like these. I encourage you to check those out as well. 
Enjoy doing the rest of whatever you do when you listen to this podcast. Until next time, I am Ben Shank, and you have been listening to Mountain Buster. <laughs>